Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. And when it comes to thinking biblically, there's an area where people talk about it, but they almost never actually think about it. And that's the topic of slavery in the Bible. So today we're going to dig into this issue and try to ask the question, like, do you actually understand what the Bible teaches on the topic? So let's survey through the scriptures and let's actually find out what it says. Right now we're going to deal with a really hot topic. That hot topic is slavery, specifically slavery in the Bible or the discussion of slavery that we find in the scriptures. This is a hot topic. It's an attack point for some Bible critics. They like to say uh, some, not all, but some like to say really bad things to really paint the scriptures as very ugly uh, on this issue of slavery. They'll say, if this book has good morality in it, why did it miss this massively important issue? social issue of slavery. But I think some truth should help shine some light on the issue of slavery in the Bible versus, say, the type of slavery we had in the American South in particular uh, during a embarrassing time of our country. So if we're here at First Peter, um, it is chapter two, is it not? I deleted that right off my... Yes. Okay. I'm just because I'd, I'd hate to look like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, But verse 18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And so it brings up this topic, this issue of servants and masters, servants and masters. But before we analyze this particular verse, I want to just do that back up, and let's briefly tackle the issue of slavery and the Bible. It's probably going to take all of tonight's uh, time. So it's going to be a little bit less of a um, heart felt the time in the word where you're coming with the feels, you know, but rather a little bit more of the, let's just get our minds right on this issue. So forgive me if that's not your thing, <laughs> but I feel like we should do both. We should kind of go back and forth between both as we get in the word, you know, because God does. There are a lot of Old Testament passages that deal with the issue of slavery, and there are a handful of New Testament ones that deal with it as well, and I want to take those separately. We'll deal with the Old Testament, then we'll talk about the New. Uh, but first, I want to make one one uh, point. There is a difference between regulating something and approving of something. There is a vast difference. In the scripture, there's a difference between offering regulations for an issue versus approving of people doing that thing. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 19, starting in verse 3, it said, the Pharisees also came to him, to Jesus, testing him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? <laughs> just the irony of the question. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Which seems to be like, well, then divorce is wrong, period. In all its ways, shapes, and forms. Then they said to him, well, then why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who's divorced, commits adultery. Again, in Malachi 2.16, God says this about divorce. Many of you know this verse. He says, I hate divorce. And I think anyone who's been through a divorce also hates divorce. It's a hateful, difficult, horrible experience. 
So God did actually give them the option of getting divorced, or you might say gave them the methods if they were to get divorced. Then here's how you do it. But this was not God endorsing divorce. Do you see the difference? We're seeing clearly that God doesn't want any divorce to happen, but he knows the hardness of hearts. He realizes that there comes a point in marriages where it's like, look, they're going to get divorced. Um, This is going to go down. And so God gives instructions as to the how because of the hardness of man's hearts. So if we just get that one principle in place, then we can delve in and start to look at the issues of slavery because it's going to come back up in a moment. But first, let's talk about new world slavery versus ancient world slavery. And um, new world slavery versus, say, the biblical kind was very different. In new world slavery, it was racial. You were enslaved because of your race. In fact, they looked for scientific justifications for this. Oh, my goodness. It was fueled by one particular illegal process in most countries called kidnapping. People would be kidnapped. They would be hoisted away. They'd be brought into slavery. Runaway slaves could be killed or would be returned to their masters for punishment. I remember when I was a kid watching the Roots program and learning and following the story of Kunta Quinte. And man, I was like glued. I was just like glued in. It was just really intense. I think that that program helped to sort of bring to, at least my generation, a fresh awareness of the brutality and the, and the, the, the horror of the impact it had on many people. And so I appreciate it for that. Absolutely. It was atrocious. It was a total violation of human rights. Beatings were a normal thing. Rape and forced sex was normal to happen to some people in that case, of some slaves. It would separate families. It was involuntary. It was not by choice. It was involuntary. And the slaves had no rights and, and ultimately no possessions. That, now, now, when you have that in your mind and then you read about slavery in the Old Testament, it's understandable that you're in shock. But that is not what they were experiencing in the Old Testament. That is not what went down in Israel. It's certainly not what God prescribed in the Old Testament law. Let me give you another little analogy. There's a group called the Emergent Church that has come out, some of you are familiar with it, and they have some weird, strange doctrines and stuff like that. But then they have a couple of other practices that are just sort of innocuous. They're not really a big deal, right? For instance, they like to burn incense, or at least they did about 10, 15 years ago. I think they've kind of moved past the incense, but um, they like to burn incense. And so we, at one point, were like, hey, we don't want to do anything that involves incense in any way, shape, or form. You know, this, this is what, this is what the, the Christian church, a lot of churches were like, I don't want nothing to do with incense. And I remember just reading through the Old Testament going like, man, they sure use a lot of incense in here in the Old Testament times. And so I look at the Old Testament and I go, wow, in the temple they used incense. You know what that means? They were emergent. <laughs> Obviously. But what I'm doing is I'm reading a modern day practice and a modern day thing into a time and place when it never happened like that. And that's the, that's the thing I don't want to do. I don't want to look at the Old Testament scriptures and have roots in my mind projecting that image onto the things I read because I will come with a prejudgment that is actually incorrect. So let's look at the Old Testament slavery. I mean, I'm going to use the word slavery because um, the translations will alternately use the term slave and servant. Sometimes they translate the same word. They'll just call it slave, they'll call it servant. I'm not sure always why they do it back and forth, but I'm going to use the term just so that uh, we're used to hearing it. Well, how did slavery exist typically in uh, Israel back in the day? It was actually an indentured servitude. It was less than a, a slavery, like you are kidnapped and brought over and you're put into service. Rather, it was more of an indentured servitude or a work for, uh, for a contract period of time. It really was. It was a contracted period of time. It was voluntary rather than starving, I would say, 
hook myself up with someone who had the money. I would say, I will serve you for X number of years if you provide for me housing and clothing and, and perhaps a wage above and beyond that. You can think of Jacob and Laban as being an example of this. Jacob leaves, Esau is chasing him. He's got nothing, just the clothes on his back, basically. He finds Laban. He ends up coming into a seven-year contract with him. Seven years was the maximum, right? And then, so he gets in the seven-year contract with him, and then he's, he gets uh, his pay, you know, changes. And Laban was a bad owner. He would have been rebuked under the Old Testament law. But there's an example of how somebody moved into that position. So it was an indentured servitude. Um, and if you have questions, I'll actually take them at the end. But please, please have them and please save them. But I don't want to interrupt because I won't be putting your questions on the video, so I don't want it to get all choppy and weird. Um, so typically, it was voluntary. Rather than starving, you'd hook up with some other uh, family and, and become their servant for X number of years. That's the context of a father selling his daughter. She wouldn't have been able to become a servant without his approval because he's overseeing that family. So he's not actually selling her in the modern sense like sex slave or some horrific thing like this. It's rather, it's like Kobe Bryant's up for a new contract. I mean, he, they're signing onto a contract. We do this. In a union, you do this. You, you come in for a contract. For this number of years, you're getting your training period. You actually get less pay than normal and yada, yada, yada. This, is, this is actually happens all the time when people have a contractual work agreement. Um, now, they actually had a wage. And it was initiated not just by the owner, but by the servant as well. It was a, it was a mutual thing. It was, again, it was caused by poverty, not racial status. It was not caused by racial status, but by poverty. There was no rape involved in God's regulations of slavery. Firstly, because rape was punishable by death, and you had the same law for the slave as you did for the free in Israel, and rape is punishable by death. You don't, you don't do this. Okay, well, you do it once. <laughs> Never again, which is nice. There was also no sex outside of marriage. So there would be no outside of marriage fornication allowed whether they were a slave or not a slave. And if, if they were married, if, this, if a, a, um, a master or whatever you want to call him married the servant girl, then the Bible requires that he give her the full status of a wife. And he's not allowed to just divorce her. So he can't do this like one night stand kind of thing. No, but he has to give her the full status of a wife. So it actually elevated her rights dramatically. In fact, they'd be punished if they violated in any of those areas. This is unlike Sharia law, for instance. In Islam, and, I've, and it's actually, this is straight out of the Quran, where he lets them know that they're prisoners of war, they can rape them, and they can be with them, and da, 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 and it's, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. I don't know if you've read the Quran, or how far you'd be able to get into it before throwing up. But it is absolutely disgusting. But he, he does. He says, you can, you can have this many, X number of women. It's like three or four. I'm not sure if it's three or four, because literally they say three or four. I imagine they mostly go, okay, four. <laughs> but, uh, but Muhammad had a special case for him. He could have as many women as he wanted. That's, but, you know, if you were writing it, you would have wrote that too. So, not like that. Oh, no, no. This is already radically different than what we saw in um, early America. In, okay, now, if you would flip over to Exodus chapter 21, we're going to be in some Old Testament passages that deal with the issue of slavery. And just so we can learn about some of these restrictions and then we'll learn about some of the, I think, a couple challenging passages that we deal with there. So Exodus 21, verse 16. Here's one of the laws in Israel. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. This is an important law in Israel. Kidnapping was dealt with very seriously. It wasn't a $5,000 fine and up to six months in jail. You would die. 
if you kidnap somebody, you were, you were to be put to death, you know, executed through capital punishment. This one law, this single law would make New World slavery completely impossible because so much of it was fueled by kidnapping. That's Exodus 21, 16. Notice that if you're either the kidnapper or the guy that's found with the kidnapped victim, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found in his hand, he shall be put to death. So you could be the guy that has these slaves on your plantation, and you're like, well, I didn't kidnap him. <laughs> Tough. You know, this would not work. What about abuse? What about when the slaves were being abused? Well, Exodus 21, verse 26 and 27, it says, If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, or damages their eyes so they can't see, he shall let them go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Now, is God only concerned with eyes and teeth? Or it seems to be that the point is, if he does some sort of serious permanent bodily harm to this, this person, although you wouldn't consider losing a tooth to be seriously, but your point is it, it demonstrates abuse, then he goes free. They go free. They break the contract and they, they go completely free. This also would uh, be really protective and really actually elevating the rights of, of those who were servants during that time. Verses 20 and 21 says this, and here's one that critics will quote, and, and wrongly, I think. But And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. So let me dig into this, because here's what the skeptics say. You can beat them within an inch of their life, and it's okay. You get off scot-free. But that's really not the context of the passage. Let's look at it. First off, if he beats a servant and they die, he shall be punished. That is the word nakam, and it's specifically used regarding the death penalty. The point here is that just because you are the quote-unquote master, you don't get off scot-free. If you slay, if you kill someone, you get the death penalty, and that applies if they're a slave or if they're not. Wow. This is, this is just unheard of in that time. There was no nation that had laws like this. So then they go, well, but if they don't die, you can beat them with an inch of their life. Well, no, 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 let's read this in context. Because we just read a few verses back that what? If there is a beating, a loss of a tooth, loss of the use of the eye or something along those lines, they go free. So what does this verse 21 really mean? Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished. No calm. He shall not be put to death. For he is his property. Because what's going to happen? He's going to lose this, this servant. So there's your punishment. You just lost the money. Say you had a work contract. I'm going to give you such and such, and you're going to serve me for this much time. Well, I've defaulted the contract. Here's your, here's your money. Bye. I'm out. And so it becomes a protective, uh, a protective device for the servants. Now look at Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. It says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Many of us are familiar with this, uh, this idea of he becomes now a permanent servant of that master. So let me, let's give this some context, because 
I think some people are just so worried they'll find something bad that, that they find it <laughs> because it's what they're looking for. I don't know. But let's look at it. First, there's, it's a seven-year contract. He can serve six years. On the seventh, he's out. He's free. So I guess it's technically a six-year contract for, this, for the Hebrew servant. No matter when the contract started, you, from the starting now, I can serve up to six years, and then I go free. Now, when the man comes to the end of his contract, if he has a wife and kids who he didn't bring in, but rather they are also contracted servants of this same guy. So his wife's a contracted servant, so is he. But I started my six years... Maybe I re-upped, and now I got another six years. But she's, so, or no, rather, she re-upped. Sorry, my hypothetical scenario is falling apart on me. She re-upped, and then he, he didn't. So he's going free, and she has another, say, five, four years left on her time. He can't just be like, come on, you're my wife, let's go. No, she has a, she's contractually obligated to stay. So he has a couple options. He can, one, he can wait. He can wait. Number two, he can buy out their debt, pay for that, pay the rest of the contract off, and then take them. Or three, he can make a lifetime contract saying, I love my master, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Now, the interesting thing is, in order to do the lifetime contract, the master couldn't go to the elders and say, yeah, he really loves me. He wants to be my, my servant forever. That's just permanent. He really, no, trust me, he loves me. You don't have to ask him. I speak for both of us. But the servant had to come and stand before them and with his own mouth and with his own face say, no, I, I love my master, I want to do this. So that, again, would protect them from this being an involuntary thing. So it's actually, it, they're just, he's regulating it. What he's doing is everything he's doing seems to be giving more and more rights to, the, to the, those who are in the servant position. Now, this is really telling. Turn to Deuteronomy 23. The Bible here actually talks about a runaway slave. What happens if the slave has run away, gone from, say, one location to another? He's fled his master for whatever reason. Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16, talk about this. It says, You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. Let me read that again. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. Wow. Why would this be going on? This doesn't make sense, right? Well, it's because if the master was violating rules or being abusive or being somehow harsh or ungodly to the servant, then they could flee and the other people in Israel are required to help them. To help them hide. To let them, oh, you want a place? Okay, let's help you set up a place over here, over here, over there. That was required under this Old Testament system that is, yes, it's regulating slavery, but in a way that seems (laughs) to be only meant to bring godliness into the picture, to bring protection and bring help. Wow. I think that's great protection from oppression. Uh, In Deuteronomy 5, we learn that the servants, uh, we won't turn there, but we learn that the servants actually get the Sabbath rest as well. The servants get the Sabbath rest. It says everyone gets the Sabbath, even the servants. God's like specific to point out that they get that day off as well. So that also elevates their rights. Now, um, what I'd like to do, though, is move to what is considered much more of a challenging passage. And it is a challenging passage. Um, So turn to Leviticus 25. So Leviticus 25, verse 39. It says, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you, this would be a, a Jew, a Hebrew, becomes poor, and he sells himself to you, 
you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. Notice the, the, the what if. The what if is he becomes poor. Remember, it was about poverty here, not race or something. And he what? Sells himself. This is a, a purposeful, willful choice. So, hey, I will give you my serv- the service of me. I have nothing else to offer you but myself. You can have me serving you for X number of years. Um, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and he shall and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Once every 50 years, they had this year of Jubilee that would show up. This would be a special time when all the Israelites were supposed to get, get all of their debts forgiven and go back to their homeland. Um, meaning that, like, say I, I got on hard times and I sold away part of my family's land. But at the, year, at the end of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, I get all that back. Just hands down. So they would buy the land thinking, okay, I've got it for 25 years because Jubilee's coming in 25. So they'd pay the, the quality of a 25-year lease on the land, basically. But it protected the land because, remember, the big promise is the land, the land, the land. So this passage is all about the land. And then he shall depart from you, verse 41. He and his children with him and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers, that land. For they are my servants whom I brought. Notice whose servants they are, gods. (laughs) Whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And as for your male and female slaves whom you have from the nations that are around you, from them... You may buy, <clears throat> sorry, I just lost my place. From them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. This is a challenging passage. I think the first thing we have to recognize is well, there's two things majorly. The context here is about the year of Jubilee. What happens in the year of Jubilee? All the Israelites go back to their land. The difference with foreigners is they don't have land in Israel to go back to. They don't have any land promised by God for them in this place. So it's not like at the year of Jubilee, oh, you go back to your, no, there's, there is this, this doesn't exist for you. It's not part of, you're not part of that promise. So really here, this is the first time we have a separation between the Hebrew servant and the non-Hebrew servant, or the Hebrew slave and the non-Hebrew slave. And the difference is this. You don't automatically get released at the year of Jubilee. Instead, what would they do? Well, they would just fulfill whatever the contract was they made. But it couldn't be a kidnapping thing. They still weren't to be held against their own will, because they could easily run away, and then everybody had to protect them wherever they went. So they still have all these other protections, which makes it totally, radically different. Can I remind you? Different than what we have in the uh, antebellum slavery of the South. Totally and completely, utterly different. It's, again, it's like, it's like seeing incense in the temple and thinking it meant they're part of the emergent church. It just doesn't make sense. It's, I'm, reading, I'm reading it, uh, I think, incorrectly. Now, was there atrocious, horrible slavery at the time? Yes, but it was not part of God's regulations to Israel, so we shouldn't relate it as though the, the two are the same thing. So simply put here, there's no seven-year jub- or, or jubilee release for, the, um, for the, the foreigners who are slaves. Now, if you would turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19. We're almost done with our Old Testament survey. We're going to look then at the New Testament. <clears throat> Leviticus 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 33 It says, if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. 
The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I love when God says, I am the Lord your God. He's just asserting like, eh. It's like that song, the, the mom song. You guys remember hearing the mom song? I'm the mom, I'm the mom, I'm the mom, I'm the mom. At the end of it, she just keeps saying she's the mom. <laughs> I think moms understand where that's coming from. But, uh, but God's just like, I'm the Lord your God. So you will love them the way you love yourself and you will not mistreat them. Now, would not this also apply to the one who is a servant or a slave? Absolutely. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 19 says this. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So we get this idea that, that um, they were to be, not to be mistreated. And all, the same laws and rules applied to them. It was just the Jubilee release that didn't apply. So we don't see this, this oppressive thing going on. First Chronicles, here's the last Old Testament passage we'll be in. First Chronicles chapter 2, verses 34 through 36. And I'll preface it. This is a, is a passage that deals with um, the genealogies of the Jews. And here's one particular person who, imagine if, if he did this, what he's about to do in this passage. Imagine if he did this, if he was a big plantation owner down in the south. Imagine if he did this. Now Shishan had no sons, only daughters. And this is verse 34. And Shishan had an Egyptian servant whose name was Jarha. Shishan gave his daughter to Jarha, his servant, as wife, and she bore him Atai. Atai begot Nathan, and Nathan begot Zabad. Right? So you've got this, this, uh, this situation, kind of like what Abraham talked about. He was like, the only heir in my house is Eliezer. I have no son. These servants, in, in lieu of their, their own biological children, would inherit the estate. Now, can you imagine a plantation owner in the South going like, oh, yeah, you know, I've got a, I've got a wife, I've got three daughters, but i got no sons. So, uh, let's see, one of my servants is going to be taken over. In fact, tell you what, hey, uh, how about, you know, you guys like, how about you guys get married and I adopt you as son and you, and you take the family name? Yeah, this is so different, right? This is just so utterly different than the type of thing that we saw there. So... Yeah, I think that's it's a wonderful thing, actually. So the Old Testament here has really some of the most ancient appeals for human rights in literature, period. It's a beautiful thing. It was different than even the slavery of other nations at the time. So God's regulations serve to protect and provide for people while still allowing for a poor person to say, hey, I, rather than starve, I'd like to attach myself to a family in this way. But it protected the person who did that. So these regulations are a beautiful thing. And I did actually make a point of trying to bring out to you the passages that, that the, we get attacked with. So that I, we've covered those as far as I know. Maybe there's one I, I didn't think of. Um, but now let's look at the New Testament. What about the New Testament? Um, in the passage we just read, it talked about servants to submit to and obey, right? Well, New Testament slavery did exist, but it wasn't a Hebrew thing. It was a Roman thing. And it didn't, it didn't have the regulations of God on it at all. Um, so there are no regulations given in the New Testament because God was not starting a nation. There was no national laws given in the New Testament, but rather individual personal laws. How should I behave? How should I behave, right? So there's advice given to those who are slaves that is not, however, an endorsement of their slavery. For instance, 
we are given advice if we're persecuted. If you're persecuted, do this, do that. Does that mean that it's good for people to persecute Christians? <laughs> no. And so the fact that we have advice to those who were enslaved is not an endorsement of their slavery. But 1 Timothy 1.10, check this out. Here's another verse about kidnapping. It says, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there's any other thing contrary to sound doctrine, saying the law is for these people. And who's on the list? Kidnappers. And this is a word that had the connotation of slave traders. Whether that would be for a sex slave trade or for some other kind of slave trade. This is a wicked, detestable act. Old Testament through New Testament. It is something that no no God-fearing Christian should ever be caught having anything to do with it. And um, we should all be ready to, to stand against it, if at all possible. Then we have, actually, a, a book in the scripture called Philemon, or Philemon, if you're from Jamaica. And, <clears throat> and then you've got the epistle of Paul, right, to Philemon. I'm going to say Philemon, and if I'm pronouncing it in a way that you don't like, I don't care. You can get over it. So... <laughs> Um, he writes to Philemon about Onesimus. Onesimus is Philemon's slave, servant, slave, right, who ran away. It appears that he stole some stuff from, um, from his master when he ran. Then he runs into Paul, gets saved. Paul then writes this letter, sends it back with him to his master. So this is the letter that, that it seems, anyways, the slave himself carried back to his master with this letter as he returns, now a Christian, after having run away. Now in Israel, it would have been a little different, but again, this is, this is a, a, a Roman-ruled area. So it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our brother, our beloved friend, and fellow laborer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So there was a, there was a home church there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So this is, this is a guy who loves the Lord, okay? He loves the Lord. But now he gets to the reason for the letter. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I love this, how he's, he's like, maybe when I was younger, I would have been like, you know what, Philemon, here's what you should do. But now that he's like Paul the aged, he's like, I just, I just appeal to you. Now that I'm Paul, there's just more, I don't know, it's a different method for him to go about himself than maybe you would have seen the younger Paul, you know, do. I think it's just really interesting. Um, then in verse 10, here's his appeal. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So he, he preached the gospel while he was chained up, while he was in prison, and Onesimus got saved. Who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You, therefore, receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. I wanted to keep him with me, but it just seemed wrong, so we sent him back. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. He wants his consent to bring Anissimus back, is what it is. Um, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. 
For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, because they were, they were of the same group of people, so in the flesh, just like he, so in, he was a Roman and he was not a Jew, he was a Gentile of some kind. But I love this. This is actually where we get the song, O Holy Night, verse 2, comes from this, this verse. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And what does he say, right? No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. So that's how he appeals to, to, to um, Philemon to bring Onesimus in as a brother, not as a slave, but as a brother. Now, he, does he tell him you have to do this, but it's the appeal to his heart, because again, we're not making state regulations. God is appealing to the hearts of believers on how he wants them to follow him. Verse 17, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. So to receive him as, as, he, as he would Paul. For if he's wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing to you with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. Because Paul had, had preached the gospel to him and he'd been saved. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you. Knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow uh, prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark. I like that Mark was with Paul again after uh, having a little fiasco going on there. Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Did you know there is a New Testament letter written to a slave owner encouraging him to do what? Take him as a brother, man. To love him as a brother. Now that could easily be seen, especially in this case, as let him go. Set him free. Tell you what, give him, give him some of your money so you can take it over to Paul and minister to him. You know, so that he could do this wonderful thing. But do you see that the New Testament attitude is something um, a little different than, um, than, uh, than what some people would think it is, would think it is. And I think Philemon is a great example of this. But there's more. Um, there, are, there are lots of scriptures, or several, there's a handful, that give advice to masters and advice to servants. And it's both sides of the coin, so we shouldn't quote one side and forget the other. But, for instance... What advice is given to masters? We'll just look at one verse on this. It says in verse, uh, Ephesians 6, verses 9 and 10. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. What does that mean? That you and the slave are actually equal, so stop threatening. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, he goes on. Um, so the masters were to not threaten, not to rule with, with harshness or with cruelty. This was, this was something that he specifically commanded them. Now, did he command them all, you masters, all release your slaves right now? That is not in the scripture. That command is not in there. There's an implication of the goodness of that, especially in the letter to Philemon. Now, what did he write to the servants? Not how to revolt, but how to get through the situation they were in while honoring God. I'll read Ephesians 6. We'll back up verses 5 through 8. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And notice this, it's only according to the flesh. They're not the masters of your souls. Just according to the flesh. With fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So he just, he asks them, look, walk in submission. Walk in submission and godliness. 
Don't have a rebellious and hateful attitude. Do your work and do it well unto the Lord. Now, does this somehow make okay a cruel treatment or something? Of course not. Of course not. Because what would his word to masters be? Well, just to love one another. There is no partiality with God. So don't be treating them with threatening or treating them harshly, but rather with godly love. Um, and there's other scriptures that, that basically say the same types of things to the master and servant in their relationships. But let's turn to one more. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is really interesting. Um, Paul's talking to people about whether they were called when they were single or if they were called, were they, were they um, uh, married or are they, are they a slave or are they free? And he gives them different pieces of advice. Though a slave, we'll learn from this passage, though a slave or a servant is called to walk in submission, they do seem to be called to take the opportunity to become free if they can Look at this. Verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. or Don't make it your big thing, right? But if you can be made free, rather use it. If you can be made free, use it. Go for it. That's even better. Great. If not, well, that's your lot. That's the situation you're in. Then it says in verse 22, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. You're free. You're not really a slave. You're free in Christ. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. So whether you're, I'm free from men, but I'm a slave of Christ. And so, Lord, if, you have, if that means as I serve you, then I'll be serving these people, then fine. I will. But if I can get free, well, great. Then I can do even more for the Lord. Verse 23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So we're actually told not to become slaves of men. So if you're in that situation, that's one thing. But this is not something you want to do. Don't move into this. Stay away from this. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So whatever your state is, glorify God there. For instance, like Joseph. Joseph was, was not voluntarily putting himself in slavery. He was sold into slavery, but then God used it for his glory. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that Joseph was so faithful. If he hadn't have been faithful and hadn't have served God and hadn't have done well for Potiphar, well, it wouldn't have turned out the same, would it? And so it's like, honor God wherever you're at, even if where you're at is a raw deal. We're not endorsing the raw deal. We're just telling you how to be a Christian in the middle of that. So the scripture throughout, it condemns the elements of slavery that made slavery so wrong. The kidnapping, the forced elements of it. It condemns the violence or the abuse or the rape or the sex slavery type of stuff that's gone on. It can, condemns throughout all that type of thing. And then it also endorses the fact that with God, there's no partiality. There's just no partiality. Slave-free, they're all the same to the Lord. And he will judge one, each one individually. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says that God has made us all from one blood. He has made from one blood every nation of men. Every nation's been made from one blood. Even the idea of racism is kind of strange, right? Because, I mean, how many races are there? <laughs> they're just, we're humans, you know? There's like, that's it, we're humans. I wish we could like get on a on a on a big lineup, just everybody from like the whitest white guy in the world, like to the darkest black person on the planet, right? And then have everybody in between, like just showing there's there isn't this clear cut, like here's these people and here's those people and here's those. We're just this great variety of humans. And there's really no significant difference between them. None. We're all made in the image of God. And we're all made from one blood. We all come from Adam and Eve. And so <clears throat> that discounts the whole idea of racism, which, of course, fueled slavery back then. Um, finally, in Galatians 3.28, it says this. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so that, especially for those you've come to Christ, you should know better than to think of this, of, of somebody as like a caste type system, like you're a lesser and that kind of thing. No way. No way. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a contract, a work contract. I think we agree there's nothing wrong with that. But slavery of the old kind, of the American kind, I should say, that, well, it wasn't just America. Come on, it was all over the world. Um, it was many, even African tribes, that were, that were kidnapping others of their own uh, communities and then selling them into slavery. It was just horrific. It's a horrific, horrific thing. But that's nothing like what we see in the Scripture. And so this should, ideally, forever silence the opposition. But it won't. But it won't. But hopefully it will arm you with some wisdom and some insight as to be able to deal with the issue, as well as to just know in your own heart so that you could see the difference and not see the incense and think that they're emergent. But um, this is why, because of all these things, this is why that Christians were at the forefront, at the forefront of so many of the anti-slavery movements that have happened throughout the years, like William Wilberforce, and that they were convicted by the scriptures and by Christianity and by following God to do these things. So that, um, that it ended up resulting in, in many ways, a reduction and even a, a, an abolishment of much of the slavery that has been gone on. Although it's not completely over, we still, have a, we still have road to till. Especially now when sex slavery seems to be the most um, atrocious and fast-growing thing that's going on right now. Um, I don't know if somehow the internet's just pushing that forward. I don't know. I don't know. But we have to, we have to stay away from all that stuff and fight it if we can. Um, in the name of Christ. In the name of Christ. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll, just, we'll do some quick Q&A if we got some. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this time in your word. Though it was a little bit more, oh, the scholastic kind, Lord, but what it did reveal to us, Lord, is your heart towards people. That, the, that you, from the beginning of the law to the Israelites, you were elevating human rights. You were bringing in love and care, and thoughtfulness, and protections for people who were in poverty, for people who were stricken, for people who were cast down. You were destroying the ideas of racism and and the ideas of oppression. And that in Christ, you call us to walk with such a love that we esteem others better than ourselves. And so, Lord, may we carry your heart, your impartial heart, uh, forward into our lives and into the world and the way we look at others. And we pray that we'd be better equipped just to interact with people who might have questions or challenges for us uh, relating to the scripture. That we'd have an, an answer, a reason for the hope that is within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for thinking biblically with me today. I'm Mike Winger, and next time we're going to pick up where we've left off in our study of First Peter, and we're going to deal with being a godly boss or a godly employee. And I mean, this should, it should, if you're a Christian, this should be your top priority, not just to be a good employee, but to be a godly one, not just to be a good boss or a successful boss, but to be a godly one. So let's see what the scripture has to say about it. And until then, don't forget to check the context.